You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. I invite you to remain standing if you're able for the reading of God's word. And just a couple of remarks before we read this passage before us. This is for all of us. This is a very serious and somber and heavy text. But this is for all of us. And I hope that we see that the darkness and the grim nature of what we find here in this passage actually provides for us a contrast so we can see the brimming and bright hope of the gospel. We're going to read chapters 18 and 19, two full chapters. It's about 10 minutes of reading. And so if you're able to stand, if you're not able to, there's no condemnation for you. So let's go ahead and read through this passage together. Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him, that is, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation? And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. 
Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he, that is God, said, I will not destroy if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. For they said, but they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men, that is the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men, that is the angels, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. 
Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. For he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I'm loving it, right? We all know this familiar jingle. This is the beloved McDonald's slogan. Uh, But what we may not know is that McDonald's hired Justin Timberlake to sing this song. But what's most astonishing is that McDonald's paid Justin $6 million to sing this four-second jingle. And if you're thinking like me, I wish someone would pay me $6 million to sing a four-second song. For McDonald's, this is nothing. This is a mere drop in the bucket. But what this story tells us is super important. What, What we learn in this little story is that our deep desires and passions are so at work. And McDonald's is willing to pay Justin $6 million to appeal to these deep desires. And McDonald's isn't alone, right? I want my MTV because you're worth it. Obey your thirst. Have it your way. These powerful and effective slogans reveal to us that at the center of our human experience lies a deep-seated, insatiable desire for autonomy, authority, dominion, and pleasure on our own terms. We want the throne. We want to be like God. And it all stems back. It, It probably sounds familiar because it stems back to Adam in the garden and his desire to be like God, which drove him to disobedience, and to take matters into his own hands. However, that's not what Adam found on the other side of biting from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And our appetite for pleasure, on our own terms, leaves us in the same perilous place. And so that's what we see in this text before us today. 
in this grim passage, we see the epitome of self-exalting pleasure and rejection of God's authority in these ancient cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we also see the consequences of such God-rejecting sin. The consequences which are tragic and fatal. And that the righteous judge of the earth is indeed just. So the simple yet profound question before us this morning is, are we going to trust God or are we going to take matters into our own hands? Are we going to trust God and turn away from sin and our own idea of what will bring us flourishing? Or will we take matters into our own hands and suffer the consequences of our sin? And as we exposit these two chapters, we'll move through it in three movements. Movement one, the calm before the storm. Movement two, the storm of God's judgment. And movement three, true rescue. One, the calm before the storm, chapter 18 in its entirety. Two, the storm of God's judgment, chapter 19, verses 1 through 26. And true rescue, chapter 19, verses 27 to 38. First, the calm before the storm. Look with me at chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Here, right off the bat, we see that God appears to Abraham. God has drawn near, as we have seen in Genesis, and he continues to draw near. And in verse 2, the text says, three men were standing in front of him. As we'll see in the verses to follow, we see here the Lord is joined by his two companions, these two angels. And we'll see them come uh, up back up in chapter 19. But for now, we see God appearing to Abraham in this theophany. And as you will recall, this theophany is a manifestation of God's presence. We saw this back in chapter 15, where God appeared to Abraham to cut the covenant and walk down the aisle of carcasses with the flaming torch and the boiling fire pot. But here, we see here that there's a lot going on. There's a lot of details. But let's not miss what's really going on here in the text. God appears to Abraham, but the most important thing about this is in verses 9 through 15. The Lord reaffirms his promise to give Abraham and Sarah a son. This is an echo of the same thing which the Lord said to Abraham in the previous chapter, in chapter 17, verse 21. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And in our passage this morning, in chapter 18, verse 10, the Lord says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And even though Sarah laughs at this statement and then lies about it, she's laughing here, just like Abraham was laughing in chapter 17. God remains unswervingly faithful to keep his promise and to grant a son to Abraham and Sarah who are well advanced in years. And the whole narrative, listen, the whole narrative shifts and it pivots with Sodom and Gomorrah. God establishes a covenant with Abraham and there's blessing and land and offspring and then the, the narrative shifts and it pivots toward wicked Sodom and Gomorrah. Look with me at verse 20. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. In the first 19 verses, it's this beautiful picture of covenant relationship. Abraham is serving the Lord. The Lord is reaffirming his promise 
to Abraham. It says in verse 19 that Abraham was chosen so that righteousness and justice would reign through the earth. Righteousness and justice. And then we see Sodom, the exact opposite. It's a photo negative of Abraham and the covenant that God has established through him. Sodom is known for unrighteousness and injustice. Their sin is very grave, unrighteousness. The outcry against Sodom is great, injustice. So what's the point? What's the point of this? What Moses is doing here in penning this down is he is setting things up for what is about to happen at Sodom. He's setting the scene for what is about to happen. Abraham is not perfect by any means, but God's perfect promises to him set the scene for one of the most vivid displays of God-opposed wickedness leading to disaster. But while we're still in the calm of the storm, we also see that Abraham's conversation with the Lord in the following verses continues to set the scene. Look with me at verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So the angels, appearing as men, they make their way down to Sodom and they leave Abraham to be with the Lord to have this conversation. And we see this conversation hinges around the question that's asked in verse 23. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? We get a sense that Abraham knows what's about to go down in Sodom. And he's getting to the heart of the matter. Lord, who are you? What kind of God are you? What kind of judge are you? In fact, in verse 24 and following, Abraham launches into a series of hypothetical scenarios where he's asking, Lord, if there's 50, if there's 50 in this big city of Sodom, will you sweep it away? What about 45? What if there's only 45? Will you, will you sweep away the, the righteous with the wicked? What about 40, 30, 20, 10? Okay, what about 10? What if there's only 10 righteous in this city? Will you sweep them away? And in every instance, God answers, no, I will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. The ends would never justify the means. Therefore, the foundational truth that we learn about God is found in this refrain that Abraham declares in this rhetorical question in verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? This is a pivotal conversation as it sets the scene and foundation for the judgment that we will see in chapter 19 and it sets the tone in the rest of the story of all of Holy Scripture. Who is this God? Once again, this conversation here sets the scene and keep this in mind as we move into the next section. It's really important and we'll refer back to it. And that leads us to chapter 19 and our second movement in the text, the storm of God's judgment. Look with me at chapter 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So the two angels, they leave Abraham and the Lord to have this conversation, and they finally arrive at Sodom. And they meet Lot at the gate, at the entrance of the city. Now, if you recall, Lot, Abraham's nephew, we've seen him before. He ends up in Sodom earlier in the Genesis account in chapter 13. If you'll recall, chapter 12, God gives this promise of land, seed, and blessing to Abraham and to his family, Lot included. And they go sojourning. And it only takes till chapter 13 where they start to begin to realize this promise that's coming to fruition. And there's overcrowding. 
There's not enough room. And so Abraham and Lot part ways. And so Abraham offers Lot whatever the portion of the land that he wants. And Lot decides to choose the Jordan Valley because it looks good. Lot takes matters into his own hands and he chooses what looks pleasant to the eye. Sound familiar? Abraham, walking by faith and trusting in God, says, take whatever you want. God already made me a promise. So back in chapter 19, we see that Lot is still in Sodom, but that he's about to face some of the consequences of his decision to choose the plastic Eden of Sodom. The angels come to visit, similar to Abraham's experience, and Lot serves them and hosts them and invites them into his home. But the evening isn't as refreshing and hospitable as Lot would have hoped for. Look with me at verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house And they called to Lot, Where are the men that came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. This is a really disturbing scene on multiple fronts. And it's here in this scene that we get a little taste, a little glimpse of the kind of wickedness and sin that Sodom is known for. The men of the city of every age. It's it's comprehensive what's going on here in Sodom. Young and old, everyone encroaches around the house to assault these two visitors in order to gratify their sexual desires. The text says that these men said that we may know them. That was the purpose. Bring them out, that we may know them. And other translations would say that we may intimately know them. And so this is one of the major distinctives of the city of Sodom and certainly of the valley. A pervasive and citywide desire to gratify homosexual desires. But we have to ask the question, we have to stop and ask the question, what is going on here? What's really going on here in Sodom? The Bible does indeed teach us that homosexuality is an aberration and sinful. But why? What is going on here? Homosexuality is sinful because it is an aberration. It is a departure, a rejection from God's good design for sexuality and human flourishing. And this is a Genesis argument. We see from the very beginning in Genesis 2, before the fall, before sin enters into the world, God's good design for human sexuality is for one male and one female to join in a one flesh union where sexual intimacy can be enjoyed and cherished as God has designed it. This is part of God's created design and it reflects and it refracts his glory and his purposes. For both man and woman are created in his image In the image of God, he created them, male and female, to reflect his glory, to represent him in the earth, and to really bring about that cultural mandate that we see in Genesis 1, 26, to fill the earth, to multiply. So in this text, we we aren't witnessing God judge Sodom and Gomorrah for homosexuality alone, surface level. It's not less than that. Certainly, God will judge the sexually immoral, but there's more to it. Homosexuality is not sinful because God randomly decided it, but it is a vivid expression and portrait of the utter rejection of God. Remember the question at the beginning. Will you trust God? Will you trust the judge, the creator of the earth? Or will you take matters into your own hands and determine for yourself what will bring flourishing and good. And church, this this isn't just out there. 
Sodom and Gomorrah isn't just out there. The sin that is just pervading Sodom and Gomorrah, we are well aware of. We are very acquainted with a rejection of God, resisting his will, taking matters into our own hands, shaking our fists at him. Sodom and Gomorrah isn't just out there. It's close and it's right here. This text is for us. So coming back to our text, after the men demand to have sexual relations with Lot's guests, Lot offers some really bad plans for how to fix the problem. One of which is him offering his daughters instead. He says, don't, don't do this to my guests. Here, take my daughters. You can have them. But the men don't listen. And they get angry. And they take matters into their own hands. And they start to encroach around the house. And they're about to break the door down. And in God's mercy, these angels take Lot, bring him into the house, and blind all the men of Sodom. They're left groping in the darkness. And this actually is a pretty accurate picture of what we look like as we reject God and as we rely on our own understanding. So now the decision is made. It's conclusive. The angels have come to check things out because the Lord has heard this cry from these cities, from the valley, and it's crystal clear. They see the kind of wickedness for themselves and judgment is coming. Look with me at verse 12 and 13. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in this city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Can you hear the urgency here? God's wrath and anger against sin is slow. He is patient, but things have just ramped up here in Sodom. And the angels are saying, get out. It's time to go. You could almost hear the Jumanji drums beating as D-Day approaches. Lot and his wife and his two daughters eventually get out of the city and along the way, there are all sorts of things that happen at breakneck speed. From multiple warnings to even grace extended to Lot and his family as they are lingering. But we get to the climax of this story and it's a picture of judgment walking up the steps of the porch and standing at the door. Lot is out of Sodom, and the crescendo of God's judgment comes swiftly now. Draw your attention to verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Can you just imagine this? Can you imagine seeing this from the mountains west of the Jordan Valley? Sulfur and fire of God's righteous wrath consuming this whole valley. This judgment is a reminder of what we've already seen in Genesis, where God exercises his authority and rule over his creation by putting down the pomp of man as he is moving toward the restoration of Eden. We've already seen this in the text. Remember Babel? The people build this great monument to the praise of themselves. And God confuses the languages, comes to nothing. Wickedness is rampant on the earth. 
and God sends a flood. And now God sends down fire and sulfur out of heaven. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And if we think this destruction is bad, this is just a taste of what is to come upon the ungodly who do not repent, who do not come to him, who say, I want things my way. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, you don't need to tur- turn here. This will be on the screen. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is serious and it has eternal consequences because of the one whom we are sinning against. This is not the local state courts. This isn't even the Supreme Court. This is the judge of all the earth. The one, as the psalmist says in Psalm 89, where justice and righteousness are his foundation. That's who we are sinning against. This is serious. So the question is who is in danger? That's the question. Who is in danger? We already learned from the story earlier that God would not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. So who is the righteous? Who are those who are righteous, who are safe? And Paul answers that for us as he echoes the psalmist in Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. How clear can this get? No one is safe. No one is righteous, not even one. Do you hear the urgency? You could almost imagine these cities, Sodom, presuming on the riches of God's grace. Well, God already promised back when Noah was on the scene that he wouldn't flood the earth with water again. Let's live however we want. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God never promised that he wouldn't send a flood of fire. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And someone might say, yeah, but come on. I'm not like the Sodomites. Look at them. To which I would respond, actually you are. We are bent toward building our kingdoms, despising God's authority, taking for ourselves what we think will give us life and flourishing and happiness, meanwhile rejecting the God who created us, who created us to reflect his glory, to represent him in the earth. This is heinous sin, against the creator of the earth. And there's no escaping it. You might not show it as much as the Sodomites, but it's there and it leaks out. And there's no escaping. You can't pray enough. You can't give enough money away. You can't do anything in your own strength to escape this kind of righteous wrath. Go ahead and try, right? Take matters into your own hands about dealing with the sin of taking matters into your own hands. It actually only compounds the issue. And church, as one of your pastors, let me just say this. If we are not wrecked, if we are not in turmoil over the gravity and severity of hell, then something is amiss. If we can joke about hell, then something is wrong. And please stop. Paul was a wreck. This is why Paul says in Romans 9 that he had unceasing anguish and sorrow in his heart for his fellow Jewish 
men, his brothers, who would be cut off from the promises of God. So much so that he says, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I wish that I were cut off instead of them. Church, we need to hear this. Certainly, this passage is for those who do not know God to turn to him, to stop taking matters into their own hands. Oh, but we tend to do this still, to take matters into our own hands, to rely on ourselves. This word is for us. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So the question is, are you trusting in God this morning? Are you leaning on him? Or are you leaning on your own understanding? Are you trusting in the judge of the earth, the one who does right? Or are you resisting his hand? It's essential. This is essential to trust God and distrust ourselves. But what does it look like to trust God? What does this mean? What does this look like to trust in the Lord? And that brings us to our third movement, true rescue. Look with me at verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The parallelism of this portion, this passage is stunning. We see that the story ends in the same way that it began. Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre looking over, looking down at the cities in the Jordan Valley, looking down at Sodom and Gomorrah. But this time, the cities are no more. There's smoke like a furnace billowing up into the air. Furthermore, Lot here serves as a contrast to the conclusion of this story. The scene with Lot and his daughters in verses 30 through 38 is some of the darkest stuff that we see in all of Holy Scripture. And the entire situation is just not good. First off, Lot's wife, as they are escaping, she shrinks back in faith and she disobeys the word of the Lord and she looks back and she experiences some of that judgment as she's turned into a pillar of salt. After the escape, they find shelter in this cave. And, and the scene is just, it's dingy. They're in this cave and Lot's daughters get him drunk and they sleep with him so that they can preserve offspring from him. This is, to say the least, this is really dark and twisted and tragic. And once again, Moses is writing this down so intentionally to provide the reader, to provide us with a contrast, with a way to understand the way of salvation, the way that God has prescribed. Once again, Moses is writing this down to provide the reader, to provide us with a way of understanding the way of salvation that he has prescribed. Lot finds himself, once again, in this predicament because of what happens in chapter 13. He walks by sight, not by faith. He chooses plastic Eden, thinking that it's going to give him exactly what he wants. As Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner writes, so much stemmed from a self-regarding choice and persistence in it. Let's trace this out. Let's trace it out. Because we see it here in this text, but we also see it in the text more broadly. Lot takes matters into his own hands. Abraham entrusts himself to the God who's faithful. 
the covenant-keeping God. Lot chooses the land because it looks good to the eye. Abraham says, take whatever you want. My God already made me a promise. Lot is in wicked Sodom, and Abraham is at the Oaks of Mamre on this mountain where he built an altar to the Lord, the very presence of God. Lot finds himself drunk and unconscious in a cave and being advanced upon by his own daughters. But where do we find Abraham here? Middle of verse 29. God remembered Abraham. God remembered Abraham. We cannot brush past this. This is covenantal language. This is the very same thing that it says about Noah. After the flood, God remembered Noah. God remembered Abraham. God's covenant love passes from Noah to Abraham. And God's faithfulness to keep his promise stands firm. After the destruction, after the rubble, the smoke clears. And God remembers Abraham. And remember, Abraham is not remembered and counted righteous because of his works. We've actually seen him just make so many mistakes in the narrative since he came on the scenes in chapter 12. So many critical errors and sins. Abraham proves to us, as Jim Hamilton says, that he was not righteous by his works, but he is counted righteous by faith. Genesis 15, 6. And he believed the Lord, and the, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. This is the point. This faith within this covenant relationship with Yahweh, this faith is the distinct mark. This is the way to escape the fiery floods of God's wrath. It's the exact opposite of our natural tendency, our Sodom-like tendency to take matters into our own hands, to find pleasure in ways that we deem good and right. And so Abraham is standing on this mountain of God's grace by faith. But what is Abraham's faith pointing forward to? What is this covenant pointing forward to? pointing forward to God's plan of rescue. And we find that God's plan of rescue is a person. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22 as we close. Luke 22 beginning in verse 39. This will be on the screen. And he, that is Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus here is on the precipice of his crucifixion, his impending death that is about to happen the next day, and he's asking for the cup to pass. But what's the cup he's referring to? Psalm 75 verse 8 sheds light on what's going on here in the garden. This should also be on the screen. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup of foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. As we saw in our text this morning, the foaming cup of God's wrath gets poured out on Sodom. And Gomorrah, the foaming cup of God's wrath gets poured out on the wicked, on the sinful, 
on those rejecting God, hating God. And here we see Jesus with the cup of God's wrath, taking it upon himself. Not taking matters into his own hands, but says, nevertheless, your will be done, Lord. This is God's plan. This is God's plan for redemption. You cannot strong arm your way into the kingdom of God. The only way through is by trusting the judge who became the criminal. For our sake, he, that is God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we would become the righteousness of God. This is good news. His life for yours. His death in your place. His resurrection for your righteousness. Whoever you are, wherever you are at, Jesus is saying, come to me. Fire and sulfur fell on me. If you are proud in heart, hear this word. This is not my word. This is God's word to you. Come to him. Reject taking matters into your own hands. For you who are weak and frail and on the cusp of your breaking point, this is for you. Come to him. The one who took upon himself fire and sulfur, the wrath of God, so that you could go free. So that you could have life flourishing in him. This is God's plan of redemption. So again, the question is, where are you at? Where are you this morning? Are you trusting God? Are you trusting in him? Can you hear his voice? That there is not condemnation and wrath for you if you trust in Christ, the one who took condemnation upon himself. Do you hear his voice? Come to him. Come all the way. This is for the unbeliever. This is for the church. Come to him today. Oh, that we would trust in the judge of the earth who will do right. The same one, the same one who took the bitter cup of wrath for undeserving sinners like us.